This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Bridget Rivera, I am very excited for this conversation because I think that we are going to thread some needles here that I have never thread before on this podcast. And I'll let you say hello, and then I'll describe what I mean. So thanks for coming. (laughs) Okay, yeah, thank you for having me. So I'm going to, this is a little description of your sort of public persona, and I double-checked it with you to make sure I understood it before we started. And this is a unique combination. I'm going to just list it off here. You are a gay Christian who criticizes basically all the arguments, or at least most of the arguments, against queer affirmation. Uh, We've had a little back and forth on Twitter, and each time we do, we, as far as I can tell, we are on the same side of some particular argument about patriarchy or, you know, what, what have you. But you are celibate. You choose to be celibate. So that's this is called side B queer Christians is another way of saying it. Mm -hmm. And yet 
you are overtly supportive of side A queer Christians. So as I said to you before we started, this makes you a kind of a unicorn in this space. And I love it. I, I love talking to people who cannot be neatly put into a box that fits a particularly popular tribe of the moment. Mm-hmm. And so even though I myself am fully affirming, I am very excited to have this conversation with you and and hear your story and where you're coming from. And there's a lot of angles, a lot of little fissures to go down. And I'm excited about it. Yeah, I am just, I'm so excited to have this conversation and I'm excited to be here. Also, you have a book coming out in the fall. Uh, it is available pr- for pre-order now, but it's it's coming out in October and it is called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. That book is not like the primary focus of our conversation, but I'm sure it's going to come up and, and I do... I do want to make sure to ask you about some of those ways, so those common ways, not least because my own research is in spiritual abuse, and so there's quite a bit mm-hmm. of overlap there, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one way we might kind of talk about this is, is just to go down that list of, of the things that I mentioned and, and sort of yeah. unpack them, and as we mm-hmm. go, things will things will show up. So you are gay. You're a lesbian. Yep. And this is the other thing, too, we should say. You, and we were talking about this before, you mostly inhabit fairly conservative circles, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me what you mean by that. What are you doing and what do those circles look like? Yeah. So I grew up in a Reformed Baptist church. I was homeschooled. I grew up in the homeschool evangelical conservative bubble. And so almost my entire background is within conservative evangelical spheres. All of my friends growing up were conservative Christians. I went to a conservative Christian college called Patrick Henry College, which is the first and I believe only college in the country founded specifically for homeschool evangelical students. Wow. Uh, So you're kind of, you're kind of, uh, (laughs) conservative Christian royalty then at this point. Yeah. 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 uh, I am definitely born and raised (laughs) for sure. And um, I grew up in New York. So I grew up kind of in, you know, a more liberal external sphere, but I was still very much enclosed within the conservative bubble. And I, I have moved back to New York and live in New York currently. But prior to moving back here recently, I I spent a lot of time living in the Bible Belt in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, So I lived there after I graduated from Patrick Henry. I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I um, attended, once again, a very conservative church down there, reformed, part of a network called Acts 29, very, you know, complementarian in their teaching, all of that. And, you know, I attended there for pretty much my whole time in Tulsa and then participated in a church plant as well. So yeah, my entire background as well as most of my adult life has been spent in conservative evangelical circles. That's my, that's my, uh, I guess, landing. That's where I've kind of been planted. And so, yeah, that's where I find myself. And so also your public work as well is in those spaces. So for Mm -hmm. instance, if you're talking about, if you're talking about queer Christians, Mm -hmm. you are talking about queer (laughs) Christians 
primarily with people who are skeptical of the whole thing, right? It's it's not yeah. like you're not talking with Episcopals <laughs> and uh, ELCA Lutherans about it. No, no. Most of the people that I engage with are people who, I guess, are brand new to the whole concept of just a queer Christian even being a thing. Right. For a while before kind of, you know, starting my, starting to write about queer issues in the church, my, I guess the people that I kind of rub shoulders with and engaged with the most um, were people who I guess were heavily, heavily conservative, um, where the idea of a gay Christian was just even just offensive. Like there is no thing as a gay Christian. Now, as I have kind of built a broader platform, I, you know, I started blogging about sexuality and kind of fostering a conversation more. Um, the people that I kind of engage with come from similar spheres as me. Right. But are wanting to unpack the damaging aspects of conservative Christian teaching and find a better way. And so those are kind of the people that I engage with the most right now. Yeah. I don't always ask this, but I, I feel like it might be relevant just given the story you you just told. How old are you at this point in your life? I am 31. 31. Okay. So 31. Yep. And then I should given, have had you guess. I, sh- I should have had you guess, but I wasn't going to do that to you. But it's always I was, fun. <laughs> I was going to guess. Like, I was going to maybe go two, three years younger than that. Okay. Take that as a, I don't know, however you want. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you can take it as a compliment if you want. I don't, I don't say that to be kind of paternalistic. I mean, I'm 37. We're not that mm-hmm. far off in age. Yeah. But more just because of the way you described how thoroughly in that world you were through college. So we're talking mm-hmm. 22, 23, and then Acts 29 church. There's not a lot of years here for, you know, like if people who are raised in a homeschool bubble eventually become Episcopal, for instance, and I'm not saying that that's your path. I don't want to, I'm not prescribing that. <laughs> um, but I, I do know mm-hmm. that Wesley, Wesley Hill, who's a big name in the world that you run in, is now attends Episcopal yeah. Church. Like, at what age does that eventually yeah. happen? You know that that's kind of the thing I'm bringing up. And again, not trying to, I don't, I'm not trying to minimize anything. I just, I think it it's relevant because we have all mm-hmm. been on these journeys, myself, almost every listener included. Yeah. Well, I know for me, I did by the end of my time in Tulsa. I moved away from Tulsa when I was about 28 years old. So mm-hmm. really, just recently. No, I was 29 actually. So really recently, um, just before the start of COVID. And I know that by the time I moved away, I was just exhausted trying to create space for myself to exist in conservative Christian spheres. And I just didn't have the oil uh, in my tank anymore. And so when I moved to New York, I was like, this is an opportunity to find a more progressive church that is also solidly like committed to Jesus and committed to the gospel um, where my existence is not going to be challenged every Sunday. Um, And so I do attend an affirming very progressive church, um, United Methodist church. And it's been kind of a breath of fresh air. It's just, it's been a relief to, exist in a church in a Christian space where I'm not having to fight to just 
be there to just exist yeah. every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I do think that there is a benefit as well, though, to you being at that point where you still really speak the language mm-hmm. um, of conservative spaces. And, and this is really this is something that I have been getting more and more interested in in general across all kinds of issues, sociopolitical, theological, mm-hmm. et cetera, which is that so many of us these days fit pretty well into one of two tribes. Yeah. We are either the anti-Trump liberals or yeah. we are the pro-Trump stop the steal conservatives. Mm-hmm. And those groups encompass almost everything. If you want your mm-hmm. fashion, your vehicle choice, mm-hmm. whether you're on Twitter <laughs> or Facebook, primarily, uh, you know, like uh, yeah. go down the line, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you like to travel or not, if you live in an <laughs> urban setting or a rural setting, it's just, it's incredible. Yeah. You can, you can guess. So no wonder our, we think our phones are listening to us. It's pretty easy <laughs> to guess the kind of stuff we're into. Um, and maybe they are. Uh, I'm not sure. I feel like the jury's kind of out on that. But like, <laughs> so anybody who doesn't do that, mm-hmm. and in the political realm, this has been kind of never Trump conservatives have been the group mm-hmm. that I've been really interested in because yeah. they didn't have a home and they have to, they're forced to explain what they think and yeah. why. And yeah. this is true of you too. You are mm-hmm. don't fit in these categories. And so my guess is it's going to make your work better and better because yeah. you are forced to be clear, to mm-hmm. think through it, to work through it. Yeah. Uh, any response to sort of that dynamic? Yeah, there pretty much is no sphere that I am in where I don't have to explain very well what I believe to other people. Um, And it's been easier now in a more progressive church because, you know, I don't walk in and the moment I walk in, everybody's like, when they see me. But, you know, if what I believe happens to come up in any setting, it's always like, huh? (laughs) How does that fit? And so, yeah, I do wind up having to really think through very critically um, what I think on things, um, what I believe on things and be able to communicate it to other people uh, because it's, you know, constantly coming up. Right. Well, we're going to do some of that today. <laughs> uh, apologies if you're exhausted explaining what you believe, but you, you know, you did write a book, so you have to be willing to explain what you believe. I, I did write a book. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> so if we go down this list, let's do this thing where we just go down the list and sort of talk a little bit about each of these things, gay Christian criticizing most of the arguments that I'm aware of against affirmation, celibate, mm-hmm. overtly supportive of, you know, active gay Christians. So mm-hmm. You're gay. What what should we know about that? Um, well, I guess, I mean, there's so many assumptions attached to the idea of being gay, being queer, being lesbian. For me, I think probably the most important thing that I like to just remind people of when thinking about the concept of queerness, gayness in particular, in my case, is that being gay is not just about sex and who you want to have sex with um, and who you experience sexual attraction towards. I think a lot of people just kind of assume that when you talk about your orientation, that it's it just has to do with sexual attraction and that's it. But in queer circles, it's more than that. It's 
you know, not just who you're, you know, sexually attracted to, it's who you're emotionally attracted to, who you're intellectually attracted to, aesthetically. Um, and, you know, when someone says that they're gay or lesbian or bi um, or pan or what have you, you know, they're not really, I mean, most of us aren't really even thinking about sex when we say that. We're talking about our relational experience in the world, how we're relationally situated towards other people. Um, and that to me is just is really important because of the ways that the gay identity is so sexualized in culture. Um, yeah. Just reminding people that we are talking about a relational experience um, because that's how we all, you know, experience our sexualities. It's not just about sex. It's about everything about how we find ourselves situated in the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about trying to apply it to myself as a straight man mm-hmm. and I'm just thinking, I've got a little one-year-old running around, mm-hmm. and he is, in some sense, a, a literal product of my heterosexual orientation, uh-huh. but obviously nothing. there's nothing sexual about the mm-hmm. fact that he's in my life. I could have mm-hmm. adopted a kid, you know, yeah. but it is an actual product of that. And so yeah. my marriage mm-hmm. to a woman also then brings all these things about being married and gender dynamics. And, Mm -hmm. and yeah, like, yes, we also have sex with each other and Mm -hmm. I find her physically attractive, but right. It it is just, it it doesn't take long to realize that like it's goes way, way beyond that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wanted to bring up under this sort of heading of gay Mm -hmm. is the thing you said earlier that you've mostly been in spaces where the idea of a gay Christian is itself a kind of a scandal Mm-hmm. And it made me yep. think of the term same-sex attracted, which is a very popular term in mm-hmm. these circles where yep. it's like we're not even acknowledging sort of queerness. Mm-hmm. We're just going to say you're just like everyone else, but you have this sinful thing where you're attracted to the same sex. And yeah. we can completely isolate that from the rest of you and then the gospel and everything else that's true of me as a straight person will be true of you with this little mm-hmm. thing carved out. And yeah. then we can reduce our cognitive dissonance and we don't have to challenge anything. And mm-hmm. okay, okay, okay. Phew, we can finally breathe. Yeah. That is probably one of the most um, challenging concepts in conservative Christian circles. The idea that the gay identity is not a valid category and therefore we can label people as same-sex attracted instead, and that that is somehow more Christian. Um, Interestingly, a lot of people don't realize that the concept of same-sex attracted, the term same-sex attraction, descends actually from Freudian psychology. Um, And it's really interesting because the same people who push for the label same-sex attracted will, in the same breath, criticize Freud and Freudian psychology and, you know, all of these things. But they don't realize that same-sex attracted is a direct descendant of the word homosexual, which is a concept, homosexuality, that Freud popularized in order to explain sexual perversion. And so, like, you can, like, trace the legacy all the way back. And the the whole idea behind homosexual, homosexuality, the reason why the queer community resists it so much is because of the focus that it places on sex. 
Mm-hmm. And the, the origins of the term were essentially to define an entire group of people by sex. Which almost nobody could have done better. There's no one better in history to have done that than Sigmund Freud. Than Freud, f- yeah. Find someone <laughs> who wants to define everybody by sex. He's he's your best candidate, right? Yep. Yep. And so you look at the term same-sex attraction and what is it doing? It's doing the same exact thing. It is reducing the entire gay experience to one thing and one thing only, yeah. which is sexual attraction. But now on that point, <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't like that they got that idea from Freud, but they might just go, well, I guess he was right about some things, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, (laughs) in in kind of a begrudging way. Here's a question that I genuinely don't understand. And I think I've just been affirming or at least leaning toward affirmation since I was, you know, 18, 19, 20. And so I just don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But what do you like? So I've never understood what's at stake for those Christians with Gay Christians like yourself, Wesley Hill, Mm -hmm. who affirm the same teachings around sexual activity and who abstain from that sexual activity, which I've always assumed would be the main thing. So Mm -hmm. I've never understood why the identity piece was such a such a bugaboo there. Mm -hmm. You spent a lot more time in those spaces and obviously had a lot more of these conversations. What do you think is at stake Mm -hmm. or going on for those conservative Christians? That's a hard question to answer because there's a a lot of different strands to answering that. Yeah. I think the first thing that's important to understand is just the political implications of um, homosexuality in society and the ways in which conservative Christianity has become allied with political conservatism Mm -hmm. and the gay identity. And I actually, I talk about this in my book, the gay identity was turned into a kind of pariah that could uh, stoke moral panic in society. Yes. Um, And so you see this happening and it started really, really taking off in the late seventies where the gay rights movement was really starting to build. And there was a lot of work being done for protection from employment discrimination. And so Christians organized against this. Jerry Falwell was very, very influential um, in pushing back against employment protections for LGBTQ people. There was a big, huge campaign. And that kind of, that was the beginning of the end. And you can actually look at a lot of the political materials of that time. And gay people became this kind of public enemy number one that represented all of the the moral degeneracy of society and the source of civilization itself falling apart. And therefore, we have to organize ourselves against this immoral enemy in order to save Christianity and save the nation. Yeah. And, you know, it was explicit. It was explicitly stated. Um, There was no veneer. There was no veiling of this. It was explicitly said. You can read the pamphlets and stuff like that. And so 
that's probably one of the biggest things at stake is for for conservative Christians as gay people have been turned in their minds into this moralized, terrible enemy that threatens Christianity and threatens civilization itself, the nuclear family, marriage, all of these like essential things. The queer community as a whole is the source of it all falling apart. Um, And that is the biggest reason why people get so angry, have such visceral emotional reactions because they see their entire way of life as under threat by this group of people. That makes sense to me. Uh, in, in some sense, it was right under my nose, and I'm not sure why I didn't think of it. A lot of that earlier, because so much is politicized, you know, it's like Hollywood, the gay agenda, Democrats. Mm-hmm. It's an entire sort of slightly amorphous uh, outgroup yeah. of which maybe the the queer folks, the queer activists are sort of at the beating center of it or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But I mean, I heard a story of a friend whose parents texted them around the election saying like, you know, I couldn't like, it makes me so sad to think that my children would be voting for the Democrats, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, that I've I've failed you, you know, kind of kind of thing, and it's yeah. like wow. So there mm-hmm. is in some circles just a very very strong kind of almost a spiritual warfare yeah. type of a veneer to it all. Yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so. So okay, let's talk about your. Let's move on and talk about your Christianity. So when you say I'm a Christian, what do you mean by that? Um. Well, I. I mean that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I have chosen to follow him with my life and follow both his example as well as his teachings, and that uh, the gospel is really the central focal point of my life um, and everything about who I am and um, how I live my life kind of goes back to Jesus and the gospel message. You mentioned, you know, when you were looking for a church in New York, you wanted to find one that was more theologically liberal so that you could be comfortable in your own skin, but that was, quote, solidly committed to the gospel and Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So when you say, like, what does it mean to be, first of all, I guess, what is the gospel to you and what's it mean Mm -hmm. that a church is solidly committed to that as opposed to what, I guess? Yeah, well, I guess the gospel represents, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, you know, incarnate in the flesh, lived, died, and rose again to save humanity and bring them into communion with God. And that through Jesus Christ, we have access to eternal life. I guess that that is the gospel in a nutshell. And I guess when it comes to finding a church that is theologically more progressive, but nevertheless firmly committed to the gospel and to the core tenets of the Christian faith, just just as an example, when I was looking for a church, one of the first churches that I found, you know, identified as Christian on their website, but then when I started attending, I... uh, started feeling like there was some things that were off. So finally I had a conversation with a pastor and I was like, Hey, do you believe in the resurrection? Uh, and they were like, 
no, we don't preach the resurrection here. And so I said, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And they were like, well, that's a complicated conversation. Well, do you believe that Jesus is the savior of the world? Well, yeah, you know, it's debatable. And finally I was like, okay, well then, you know, what do you believe about the gospel? And their response was, oh, we preached the four gospels here. And they didn't even know what I meant by the gospel. They thought I was referring to the four gospels of the New Testament. So (laughs) um, uh, that is a type of progressive church that I was not looking for, because in my mind, they've gone beyond just progressive theology, they're now denying the core tenets of the Christian faith that make it Christianity in the first place. Um, And so I was looking for a church that was more theologically liberal, but nevertheless, solidly Christian. They affirmed the core tenets of the Christian faith that are, you know, spelled out in the ancient creeds, because I wanted to know that, you know, regardless of theological differences that might exist in the church, the gospel is going to be preached every Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. So I want to move on to this bit about that you you appear to me to criticize all more or less all the same arguments mm-hmm. that I criticize that are coming yeah. from the non-affirming Mm-hmm. Um, crowd. And I'm, I'm using some of these terms loosely, you know, you understand. We can get yeah. into specifics as we go. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, one of the big arguments that I have found persuasive mm-hmm. and is the, is the cornerstone of episode 10 of this show, which is the most, by far the most listened to of any really? episode. Yeah. Which is, uh, you have permission to be gay affirming. So I haven't been able to eclipse it in 115 more episodes. Wow, that's uh, I, amazing. I, I knew, I always knew it would be the most listened to. It's it's uh-huh. just the issue that is, you know, the most on people's mm-hmm. minds. Yep. Uh, and of course, my my guest, Daniel Kirk, did an incredible job on that mm-hmm. episode. But the basic, the basic thrust of his argument, which is my favorite argument uh, for affirmation, is the views against same sex, same gender sex, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it non-heterosexual sex acts Mm -hmm. in the text is all part and parcel of a patriarchal worldview that Mm -hmm. included the way women were treated Mm -hmm. and the way slaves were treated. So you have slaves, women, and sexual minorities or non-heterosexual sex acts come out of the same cloth. It is an ancient, it is a view that literally everybody held in the mm-hmm. ancient world, maybe with some very few exceptions, I like to think Jesus didn't hold it. Yeah. You know, and and a handful of other heroes of the faith, but pretty much everybody believed that. And there's really good evidence when you look at sort of non-biblical texts from those yeah. eras, both Old Testament and New, that this is just what people thought. And they weren't even cagey about it. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we should situate mm-hmm. these teachings. And I I promise I'll stop in 30 seconds. And since most of us rightly reject that view of women as subordinate and the view of slavery as God ordained in any sort of sense, we should Mm -hmm. also reject that thinking around homosexuality. So Mm -hmm. that's my favorite and most persuasive argument to me. What is your take on that argument? I think that argument is definitely persuasive and has a lot of things about it that are compelling. I do think that the two or three kind of infamous clobber passages 
that are used to condemn gay people are not really as cut and dry of a condemnation of, of homosexuality as people like to say. I do really think that you have to understand those passages in the context of the time period that it was written, which is that in ancient Rome, sexuality was not understood as an expression of our attractions. Um, Attraction was largely considered peripheral. Not that people didn't have sexual attraction, they did. And you can hear people, you know, ancient texts and things like that talking about attraction, but that wasn't considered kind of the defining thing about sexuality, the way we kind of consider it today. Um, sexuality was considered an expression of dominance and right. power. And so people didn't have sex primarily with, you know, people that they were attracted to. They did. But again, that was peripheral to them being having sex with people that they were more powerful than um, and dominating them. And it was primarily considered a thing that, you know, dominant men did to someone else. You didn't have Mm -hmm. sex with people. You had sex on people. (laughs) (laughs) On people. (laughs) Right. No, no, exactly. And and that's how it was understood. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that is why, like one of the things that Daniel Kirk brought up was Mm -hmm. when you look at the cultural assumptions of that time and place, it was not seen as negative. If you had gay sex and you were the top, it Mm -hmm. was seen as negative if you were the bottom. Now today we, we sort of get that. Like we understand that maybe high schoolers Mm -hmm. will make jokes about that, but none of us today really thinks and, and conservative Christians today don't make a distinction between tops and bottoms Mm -hmm. in gay sex acts. Right. Uh, you, You don't have pastors only railing against being the receiving end. Yeah, it's seen as entirely the same, but that is not how they saw it then. And that is not the context of those concepts at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And so I really, even though I have a traditional perspective, I really, really think that it is essential that those verses be, be understood within that context of power, dominance, rape, exploitation, all of that. And I really don't think it's possible to really make any sort of really compelling argument that Paul was talking about sexual orientation. Um, He just, he wasn't sexual orientation just did not even exist as a category back then. Right. Yeah. So obviously that like leaves the question open. Okay. Well then why do you hold to a traditional perspective? You asked it for me. Yes, (laughs) I did. I saw it coming. Um, And so uh, I, uh, for me, how I see sexual ethics coming from scripture and where I see, I guess, my traditional convictions coming from is from a holistic reading of the Bible from uh, the beginning to the end, um, a vision for life and human flourishing and what it means to kind of, I guess, fulfill the creation mandate. Um, And so I see my traditional convictions kind of flowing out of that kind of more holistic narrative. I don't think that you can really point to a verse here and point to a verse there to build a traditional perspective, um, traditional convictions. 
for me, it's kind of more of a holistic picture of the entirety of scripture and what it means to be embodied as a person. And I don't necessarily see that as being, I guess, this um, exclusive position that therefore labels all other positions as not not Christian. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the reasons why you'll see me breaking down a lot of the more common non-affirming arguments is one, because they're just bad. Um, but then two, another reason is because I really do believe that compelling arguments can be made from scripture for a more progressive understanding of sexual ethics, even though those arguments are not what ultimately compel me. And, you know, those arguments aren't ultimately what convict me. I do think that arguments can be made that make sense out of the whole biblical narrative that are clearly attempting to be just as faithful to scripture as my understanding is, um, and yet come to a different conclusion. And so, you know, for me, even though those arguments aren't ultimately what compel me, um, I feel as if it's more important at this point in time to get people to understand that this is a valid theological position to hold. Even if you disagree, it is still a position that thoughtful, faithful Christians can have. And their convictions are just as driven by a desire to be faithful to scripture as mine is, as yours is. And, you know, we don't have to go around saying that that is not Christian, that that is heresy, because it's not. Yeah. I mean, what? so one thing I am not interested in doing, and, and I apologize if any listeners wanted this, is to engage in a debate on whether, you know, what what we how where we should land on this mm-hmm. issue. So I, I don't care about doing that. I don't think that that mm-hmm. that's a different show. That's not my yeah. show different conversation. <laughs> what I want to point out is some some stuff that I think is interesting and that I like about your position, mm-hmm. which is that there's a nice ecumenism and pluralism at play here mm-hmm. that I think takes the history of Christian theology more seriously than do a lot of uh, more kind of knockdown drag out arguments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what it sounds like is for for instance, a difference between us is that I'm I'm much more willing to sort of do away with a lot of the attitudes of the biblical writers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that in, in intuitionally, I put a lot more weight on sort of the progressive revelation of the Holy Spirit through time, mm-hmm. and yeah. a lot less on sort of how well did they get this stuff mm-hmm. written down in the first place. But that's yeah. fine. That's just yeah. a different. We have a different emphasis. What I love about what you're saying is that. Nobody who is coming at this stuff in good faith is out of bounds, Mm -hmm. right? Just because we disagree on some of the conclusions, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. And I Mm -hmm. love that you said people calling this heresy, it's not heresy. It has has nothing to do with sort of any of the core doctrines. Now, I personally – quick side note – I care less and less and less and less about heresy. Uh, I find <laughs> I find more and more that it is just like 
it's a quick way for people to avoid doing the work of figuring yeah. out why they disagree with someone. Yeah. And it's yeah. like usually a scare tactic. However, it can be a useful concept in determining limits of a Christian organization, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's just none of this is heresy. It just yeah. isn't. It doesn't yeah. get at anything potentially heretical about the nature of Christ or mm -hmm. you know, there's just none of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe some very fringe claims might, but basically that what we're talking about never approaches that. So th so that's some of the stuff I really liked about what you said and yeah. just skipping over most of our disagreements because it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And like you, you referenced this, the idea of like the progressive revelation of the um, Holy Spirit and yeah, a lot of people kind of, and again, this gets to just like how you approach the Bible and uh, different people approach the Bible in different ways. Um, and so uh, many people that hold to a more progressive understanding of scripture do take that position that the unfolding of God's covenant in time and space is a progressive, you know, opening up of God's justice in the world. And, you know, the arc of God's revelation and humanity bends towards justice and, you know, expands outward over time. And I think, again, getting to what I was saying before, it is a different approach to scripture than the one that I have, but it is not one that leads to heresy that is fundamentally not Christian. And that's like really hard for people to swallow when it comes to the question of sexuality, because we have been so indoctrinated into thinking of sexuality is way more important than it actually is. But I like to kind of take people a step back and challenge them to consider um, theological doctrines that we maybe are a little bit more cool headed on today, like baptism, for example, a Baptist who practices believers baptism approaches scripture completely and fundamentally different from a Presbyterian, for example, who practices infant baptism, like their approaches to scripture and their understanding of God's covenant um, and how it is made manifest in the world are completely different. And it leads to completely different conclusions on uh, who should be baptized. But we have this understanding that both are still Christian and we don't even necessarily look at one or the other. If, you know, you're a Baptist, most people don't look at a Presbyterian and think that they're living in sin because they've never been baptized as adults. Like they just don't, they don't think of it that way. A few and, fundamentalists yeah. here and there, but for the most part, most of us yes. don't, right? Yeah, like a few fundamentalists here and there. And those, those people are kind of like leftover, a leftover taste of like yes. a couple hundred years ago yep. when Christians legitimately were killing each other over the question of baptism. I was going to bring that up, but yes, <laughs> yeah. you're right. Yeah. So there yeah. are these kind of historical move, like there are these moves and it's sort of like, I was listening to somebody interviewing Audrey Assad yesterday and, and I'm going to, she's going to come on the show as well. And she was raised Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren. And mm -hmm. in that denomination, women were not to talk about spiritual things mm -hmm. to men and mm -hmm. they covered their head when they were in, you know? And so mm -hmm. it's like, there are people who, there are a handful of people who take those mm -hmm. things, those verses 
literally yeah. or straightforwardly or whatever. And the rest of us sort of pretend that they don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> but what's actually happened is that most of us find that extremely implausible now. Yeah. yeah. And it's the text hasn't changed, although, you know, maybe a little bit of translational progress, I suppose. But like, you know, pretty much we understand what the Greek says. That's <laughs> not the difference. Yeah. It's that we find it implausible. Yeah. And you can either say that that is God uh, mm-hmm. shaping imperfectly, uh, as we imperfectly respond to God, shaping our consciousness, becoming clearer over time. Mm-hmm. Or you can say that everybody is going to hell and they have <laughs> they have uh, given up on scripture mm-hmm. and you should be Plymouth Brethren mm-hmm. if that's your conscience. <laughs> and then see how it goes. It's probably not going to uh-huh. go very well for you, I think. Yeah. You know, and those are kind of the choices you have within the Christian mm-hmm. tradition. You and I would both take the first, but then it's still a matter of degrees and mm-hmm. what what issues fall under that and what yeah. issues probably don't. And we might have different intuitions about where we think modern society is getting some things right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that stuff is that's to be debated over time. Yeah, because obviously, like we're talking now for the first time. So I'm not sure completely how you might understand Paul in the New Testament and kind of the, you know, restrictions that he places upon different churches. A lot of people um, see Paul as like his teachings were, you know, sexist, misogynistic. And we now know today that those things are wrong. And, you know, it was just a product of the culture that Paul was in. Um, For me, I, I guess, see it differently in the sense that I really think that Paul was revolutionary in his time and still is today. Mm-hmm. And when you understand Paul in the context of his time, you realize that he was actually liberating women. Um, and he was actually establishing very radical gender norms that when understood in context, are still radical today. And a big one that I like to point to is um, head coverings, because you, you even mentioned head coverings with yeah. you know, the brethren. Um, I actually had to wear a head covering when I was growing up, not all the time, but just when I would go to church. So I've spent a lot of time kind of exploring the passage where Paul says that women should wear head coverings. Um, and one of the big, I guess, radical things for me was reading um, Sarah Rudin's Paul Among the People, where she kind of unpacks Paul in the context of his day. And she observes that Paul's requirement that all women wear head coverings was not to somehow repress women, but it was to establish equality among women because a head covering represented being a married woman, um, having a husband. Um, it was a status symbol. Status symbol, um, yeah. And so if you require all women to wear head coverings, then even single women, even prostitutes have this status symbol upon their head, regardless right. of whether they have a husband or not. And so mm-hmm. it was like requiring women to wear head coverings was this very radical thing. And no, that does not mean that we have to force women to wear head coverings today because head coverings don't have that same meaning anymore. Um, And so, yeah, like understanding Paul in his context, in his time, really, to me, just completely changes how we understand him. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the, the short answer about me is I'm somewhere in between 
mm-hmm. uh, those two descriptions you gave of Paul. But let's let's take a break, and when we come back, let's talk about celibacy and how you walk this line of you know your own choices, but the way that you support the people, queer Christians who make different choices. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. most recent exclusive episode for patrons of this show is the first in a series of response episodes to the new Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. That is, of course, about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church uh, here in Seattle, right in my backyard. And uh, Tony Jones and I, former guests on the pod, um, are responding to that a couple episodes at a time. So that's the most recent episode for patrons. Patrons get two of those exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group. If you'd like to become a patron, you head to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That link is in the show notes. And we'll get back to my chat with Bridget. So I, at this point, I want to address a concern that I think some listeners will have had, although fewer listeners of this show than maybe other shows. And that would be like a concern from further left that like, why give Bridget or anybody who is who is advocating for celibacy for queer Christians like a platform? Like, why? Mm-hmm. Why talk about it? Mm-hmm. And I I reject that argument on two grounds. And I think that it will kind of flow nicely into what we have to talk about. The first is that I think that view is very naive about how people change their minds. Mm -hmm. And this is when I was saying earlier to you that I love that you're in these more conservative spaces. You know, Mm -hmm. I am doing spiritual abuse work right now Mm -hmm. and I would love for that research to reach Southern Baptists and fundamentalists. But you know what? I'm not the one to reach those people. If they look me up, they are not going to trust me. I hope that my work will get into the hands of people that they will trust. I hope that Andy Crouch reads Mm -hmm. or Andy Stanley, the, these Mm -hmm. guys, Staley, Stanley, I I know this this world so little or Tim Keller. I want those people (laughs) to pick up on my research and then they tell them, right? Like, because I can't reach them. So that's that's one thing. So uh, there are people that you will reach and you will be able to change their minds on some percentage of what they believe and mm-hmm. how they act. Uh, yeah. And other people will not be able to reach them. Yeah. Number two is there is a real difference between holding a view and enforcing a view. And this yeah. one is yeah. di- this one is stickier. And my own personal experience with our old church and leaving that church was over this distinction. It became clear Mm -hmm. to me that I was expected, if I did youth work, to tow the revoice gay celibacy line with Mm -hmm. any teenagers who came out to me as gay. And I was not willing to do that personally with my own conscience. But that's different than someone saying, here is my view, right? So that's an enforcement of the view. And to me, you're being very clear about where you stand on those two things. And I think that that's excellent. That is the marketplace of ideas. That is Mm -hmm. Christian unity, frankly. Yeah. So I just wanted to address that. I don't know if you have any responses to either of those points. 
Yeah. And w- one thing that I'll say just in, in, in response to the idea of like advocating for gay celibacy, I don't advocate for gay celibacy. And that's like a big misunderstanding because they see, they hear that I'm celibate. People hear, see in my bio that I'm celibate. And there's like a million assumptions that coincide with that, that, you know, I'm, I'm enforcing gay celibacy. I'm pushing it onto gay people. I'm out there telling everybody you have to believe this. And that's really not at all what I do. I advocate for um, agency for queer people to be able to search the scriptures and come to their own conclusions um, about what the Holy Spirit is teaching them from God's word, whether that leads them to celibacy or that leads them to affirm same-sex marriage, or it leads them to something completely different that we've never even thought of before. I really advocate for queer people to have agency over their walk with Jesus, um, to be able to search the scriptures and come to their own conclusions as they walk with the Lord. Um, And that is, I really think, what queer people just need um, is the freedom and the space to follow Jesus as he leads them. I think it's what we all need, but queer people, especially because we've been robbed of that freedom, we've been robbed of having that space for so long. And so, you know, I want to see greater acceptance of queer people's agency over their faith. So, you know, I am celibate and I want to see celibacy become a healthy option, a healthy choice that queer people can make if they want to make it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm committed to making celibacy a healthy, life-giving choice, but not as a, you have to choose this, but as a, if this is what you want, I want to make sure that you're able to choose it from a healthy place and that you are able to have a flourishing life within that. Yeah. Is there a sense though, in which the thing that you are offering makes more sense for queer Christians in a more conservative context than it does, for instance, like a queer Christian who was raised Episcopal? They probably don't, you know, like probably don't need the thing that you're offering in that sense of like being able to consider like they're just it's cool, Mm -hmm. you know, from it's in the water for them. And yet uh, a queer kid raised Southern Baptist is going to have a very, very different experience, very different teenage experience, you know, very different youth experience. I don't know what Mm -hmm. what you think about that. Yeah, I do think to a certain extent that is often the case you know, queer Christians that are raised in very liberal denominations might not necessarily have the same questions that someone from a more conservative background does. Um, And a lot of like the affirming theology that exists in those spaces, you know, might be just taken for granted um, and never necessarily questioned. For most queer people, I think there is a lot of questioning that goes on, even in liberal denominations, though, Hmm. because of the kind of universality of homophobia. Right. And even in liberal spaces, um, no matter how affirming the theology is, you still hear these negative messages about queer people constantly. And so that causes Hmm. even queer people in more affirming denominations to doubt their faith, to question what they believe, to approach scripture from a place of fear and shame and anxiety, not knowing what it says. 
you know, not all, but it's yeah, a very common, common experience. Also, a lot of those denominations put a lot less emphasis on sort of personal Bible study. And so mm-hmm. you, you might be bringing something to the table just about reading scripture yourself and taking it seriously. That might be the thing that mm-hmm. blows the mind of a queer uh, Episcopal teenager or something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about celibacy. I mean, celibacy is really interesting because – and this has been the thing that I have always appreciated the most about mm-hmm. the sort of revoice, gay celibacy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, revoice mm-hmm. is an actual organization that a lot of this stuff mm-hmm. – I know you've done work with them um, mm-hmm. just for people if they're not familiar. Now, but th- this whole sort of constellation is that the main critique of – our culture is that it is like hypersexualized. And mm-hmm. in fact, that the church is like hyper focused on sex, marriage, and families mm-hmm. in a religion that basically grew from celibate people. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. Paul didn't remarry, <laughs> uh, whether, whether or not he was married, Jesus never married the entire monastic tradition, you know, all Catholic priests and nuns and monks. Mm-hmm. And, Celibate people in ministry have so much energy freed up to Mm -hmm. do other kinds of work, and we really have lost any kind of value of celibacy Mm -hmm. just at a general level, and churches don't know what to do with people who aren't you know, marriageable age, people who aren't married, or married people that don't have kids. They Mm -hmm. just – you know, it's – we're so locked into – the standard nuclear family thing, which is not mm-hmm. biblical. It, yeah. it's, it's not old or new Testament biblical. Mm-hmm. It is like Victorian England. And then, <laughs> and then applied very successfully in the 1940s through sixties of the United States and then yeah. exported around the world from there. So I know I, I'm saying a lot of stuff that, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm blabbering yeah. a bit, but, but that's a real cool thing to talk about in my mind. Yeah. That yeah. is very real and is actually unrelated to the queerness part Yeah. Yeah. That's actually something that I really, really want to see happen is recapturing an understanding of celibacy as a radical practice, as a um, radical lifestyle that turned the world upside down in the time of Jesus, that is subversive, problematic social structures that you know, really frees people from ties to things that often limit people's options in life. And we we really have lost that understanding of celibacy today. We don't think of it as a radical practice, as a revolutionary concept, as a liberatory concept. We think of it as repressive, as a product of um, social structures that oppress marginalized people. And there's a reason for it because it has turned into that. And I really want to recapture that radical vision for celibacy. And ironically, um, I do think that there are people that are recapturing that vision. um, And just as case in point, the way that I arrived to celibacy was not through Christianity, was not as a result of Christians. I uh, had never even considered the concept of committing to lifelong celibacy until I met a queer atheist. They weren't even a Christian. Hmm. And they introduced me um, to uh, 
queer cultures critique of a concept called amato normativity. And amato normativity is the centrality that romantic relationships play in people's lives. Um, and this person was this radical atheist lesbian who did not want romantic relationships, did not want sexual relationships, thought that they thought that those things were oppressive and part of structural norms that, you know, repressed people. And she wanted to live a life that, you know, did not have sex or romance. She just wanted to live with a committed friend and that that was, you know, the best way to live her life. And meeting her was a completely transformative thing for me because I had never met someone who was like that. And her desire for those things completely sprung out of her queer culture. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is transformative. This is revolutionary. And so uh, for me, it didn't come from a repressed place. It didn't come from these oppressive structures. In fact, it came to me as this liberatory thing that allowed me to escape the oppressive system that I was in, where I felt like I had to choose between marrying a man or marrying a woman and introduced me to a whole other option for life and love and happiness. And so that was like amazing for me. And I want to see more people be introduced to celibacy in that kind of liberatory way, because most people are not. Most right. people have it forced upon them as like the only way to be holy. And if you don't do this, you are living in sin. And like that will never produce a healthy life. It just will never do anything good for anyone. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, the psychology student in me is thinking right now in, and I really do not, I'm out of my depth here. I'm just telling you what I'm interested in. I have no expertise here (laughs) about like how most people do end up wanting to pair up now. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is sort of ride the line here on the one hand, acknowledge that yes, marriage, wives as property, children as property, You know, an unmarried woman in most ancient societies having basically a shitty life Mm -hmm. and and really no rights and no power and, you know, children, child brides and, you know, all this Mm -hmm. awful shit. Acknowledging all that. That's real. Yeah. And most of the world is is beyond that now. And in that most of the world still most people choose to partner up. So, there that's the tension that I want to hold. And so what I'm kind of thinking through and processing in real time here is it sounds to me like what has been liberative for you will undoubtedly be liberative for other people. Also, Mm -hmm. probably a minority of people in Mm -hmm. the sense of like most people seem to choose in free societies to get married. And, you Mm -hmm. know, it's hard to know how much of that is social pressure whatever, but a lot of the pressure, the financial pressure is gone Mm -hmm. and people still do it. So, but they do Mm -hmm. it later, you know, and they don't get, they don't do it as early. They have fewer children. They they tend to, Mm -hmm. there's some interesting, and again, out of my depth, but this is where my, my mind went. Yeah. I do think that, you know, celibacy in particular, you know, choosing to, uh, you know, be committed to not having sex for life is very much a minority choice. Most people are not going to choose something like that. And I think, you know, people aren't meant to just be islands to themselves. Um, And so, 
you know, I do think that the impulse to pair up, to have a person or, you know, a close knit group of people is, you know, very much part of the human experience. And so for me, I'm celibate, but I'm also partnered. I also have a partner that I do life with. We have a cat and a dog. We're planning to buy a house. Like we, you know, we live our whole life together. You know, it's not, you know, romantic, it's not sexual, but it's an incredibly important and meaningful relationship to me. And that gets to, you know, the whole concept of like, the centrality of romance as, you know, a romantic relationship needing to be the source of your relational stability in life. I do think that's a modern concept that you don't necessarily find when you, you know, go back historically in other cultures, even in Western culture, the whole concept of a romantic partner needing to be the thing that provides like stability relationally is really something that only started developing around like the 1800s. And, you know, prior to that, most people found like the source of their, you know, the concept of a soulmate, for example, the Bible doesn't ever refer to a soulmate relationship as being a romantic relationship or Mm -hmm. being a husband-wife pairing. Anytime the concept of a soul-level relationship comes up in the Bible, it's referring to a friend. Um, So David and Jonathan, um, Jesus and John, you know, those types of relationships. And so, you know, yes, people will tend to pair up with one other person or, you know, a small group of people. I think that's part of the human experience. But at the same time, I do want to kind of deconstruct this assumption that it has to be romantic in nature in order for that to happen. That's all interesting. I I think I'm, I'm too far out of my depth to have any (laughs) other, it's just, it's, it's of great interest to me, but I don't really know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, But here's a question for you in a Christian context. Is it possible to do celibacy without the assumptions of purity culture. Let me, let me say what I mean by that. When I say the assumptions of purity culture, I mean the idea that any sex act outside of a uh, committed or whatever, marriage, heterosexual, Mm -hmm. you you could have a affirming version of this too. You could Mm -hmm. say any marriage, right? Mm -hmm. That any sex outside of that is, impurifying and is sinful in God's eyes. And so that's the sort of theological motivation for not having sex. It seems like for those of us who were raised with purity culture, mm-hmm. you and myself included, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, to say they are inextricably linked is an understatement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it takes a lot of mental work to separate those two concepts of celibacy yeah. and, and, and those purity assumptions. I know that your answer is going to be, yes, it is possible. Uh, but so how, so how do you see it being separated uh-huh. from those assumptions? Well, I think a big an important part of separating it from those assumptions is just pushing back against the notion that celibacy is necessary Um for gay people to be Christian, for gay people to go to heaven. Uh, And that sounds counterintuitive. Like if you're trying to like, you know, 
make celibacy a healthy thing and trying to say that celibacy is a good thing. Why would you say that you don't have to be celibate? (laughs) Like it seems counterintuitive, but um, I do think that just on a psychological level, if something is not a choice, it will never be experienced as a product of freedom. Um, Mm. It will never be experienced as a good thing. Someone could, you know, put like a piece of cake in front of you I don't know what would be a good, if they tell you that you have to eat that slice of cake in order to have, you know, a family and friendships and, you know, a good life, you're going to be like, why do I have to do this? Like, it's a slice of cake. It's a good thing. But like, why is my entire life dependent upon this one thing? Right. And so, yeah, like the minute that you put like a mandate upon even a good thing, it becomes a bad thing. It becomes a source of repression. And so, yeah, I think like a big, a big part of kind of making, I guess, taking celibacy out of the purity culture confines is emphasizing this idea that celibacy is not necessary to be a good Christian for gay people that you can follow theological convictions. There are ways to be a faithful gay person and a Christian that don't necessarily lead to celibacy. And, you know, I I spoke about this earlier that I do believe that there are, you know, ways to approach scripture where an affirming perspective is attempting to be just as faithful to scripture as my own. And so I think it's important to emphasize that, that this is not, this is not a salvation issue. And I think, you know, from that, you can then begin to build um, a healthier approach. Tell me if I'm getting this right. As I listen to you, what it seems to me that is important in your understanding of all this is really not the question of whether these acts are sinful. Mm -hmm. And it is more about coercion and freedom and I mean, really, we could say freedom in Christ mm-hmm. and and sort of like uh, self-directed agency, mm-hmm. uh, agential choices. Right. It's not yeah. actually about avoiding sin, mm-hmm. which I'm really intrigued by and also makes me think you're going to have a hard time convincing conservatives mm-hmm. of of your actual viewpoint because they just don't tend to think that personal freedom and choice are that big of a deal. They're more authoritarian. You Mm -hmm. obey the rules. These are the rules. If you tell me that there's a new way of understanding the rules, I might be able to move a little bit. But Mm -hmm. if you're telling me that rules aren't important and that actually freedom is important, I'm out. I think is what a lot of them will end up saying. So did I, am I getting you right? First of all? Yeah, I think that is a pretty accurate portrayal of kind of what I prioritize. Yeah. Well, so I mean, do you want to respond to this, to my, my worry, <laughs> like if I, as yeah. if I am your marketing, I don't know, you know, my worry about your <laughs> message landing? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first of all, I think it's important not to put the cart before the horse. Hmm. And when you put rules and regulations and boundaries that cannot be crossed um, before the freedom that we have in Christ, you are reversing the gospel message. And yeah, turning it into a, you know, religion of moralism. And, you know, the Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free and that rules are important, 
But the Bible also says that the law brings death. And if you give people rules and regulations, if you give them the law first, that brings death. You have to give people the freedom of Jesus Christ. Um, and it is in the freedom of Jesus Christ that we learn to walk with him, that we learn to you know, understand the boundaries within which we want to guide our lives, within which we want to walk with Jesus. And, you know, the understanding the limitations of our walk with Jesus comes as a natural byproduct of being with him, not as a precondition to be with him. And so what you see a lot of times in churches is the rules come first, the law comes first. And, you know, the Bible actually says that the law brings death. (laughs) And this is what you see in many churches for queer people is um, it really is death for them. And queer people wind up despairing of uh, being able to be loved by God at all, because all they have is rules upon rules upon rules heaped upon them. And it becomes impossible because, you know, you can't ever be sexually pure enough, follow enough sexual rules right. in order to get to heaven. You just can't. Mm-hmm. And so you have to preach the freedom that we have in Christ first in order to begin to start walking with him and start understanding how he wants us to live our life. This is like basic Christianity 101. Justification happens and then sanctification follows. Like yeah. basic and stuff, but we get it all mixed up for some reason when we talk about queer issues. Uh, I actually, I mean, I would, I would point to it goes deeper than queer issues, and and now I'm referencing a a recent episode with John Sanders about authoritarian, authoritative religion versus mm-hmm. nurturant religion, and authoritative, authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, it just is like a top down authority based system that yeah. Jesus pretty explicitly rejects and mm-hmm. yet characterizes most American Christians. And mm-hmm. so uh, you're right. Also, mm-hmm. most American Christians don't want to hear it. And yeah. and they have enough um, economic power that they can fire pastors who tell them that. And so mm-hmm. they have all these, you know, there's all these sort of subconscious and unspoken ways that they can keep Christianity authoritarian, authoritative without yeah. l- without having to become nurturant. But that's, we don't have time to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I just, we've got a few minutes left here. I want to ask you about your support. So tell me if this is a correct way that you would characterize your view. Mm -hmm. That in your opinion, and I know that you are not making it about sin management. You're not making it about sort of where all the lines are. But it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is for you, maybe for others, to have sex in a non-heterosexual way you think is probably sinful. It does not line up with your view of human flourishing from the holistic mm-hmm. reading of the text. However, you recognize that other people have other views that are also trying to be true to the text. And mm-hmm. so you could be wrong about that, but that's what you currently think. Is that accurate? I think I wouldn't say it exactly that way. Um, And this maybe gets to like my hesitancy to define things by what is sinful and what is not sinful. Great, please. Because I don't define other doctrines that I believe like that. Like, Hmm. you know, getting back to the baptism 
you know, conversation. I don't define the fact that I believe in believer's baptism by saying, I think infant baptism is sinful. Um, that sounds really weird to me and does like actually does not make sense. Um, and, you know, similar for, you know, other, other major Christian doctrines that are not, you know, core, like tenets of the Christian faith, like for example, the Eucharist, you know, I think it's a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. I don't actually define my belief in that by saying that people who take it as the literal body and blood are sinning. Uh, It's just like weird. Like, I don't know. I just don't define my theology based upon sin or not sin. I define it based upon what I find to be most compelling in scripture, the narrative that I see popping out of the Bible for me that, you know, makes sense out of who God is and out of who I am. Mm. And so, you know, I would say, you know, I believe that, you know, the most compelling narrative about human sexuality is a narrative that speaks to the mystery of creating new life and that there is something mysterious and something beautiful about the creation of new life at the center of human sexuality. And that is what I find most beautiful. That is what I find most compelling. And so I want to order my life in such a way that, you know, expresses that mystery, that expresses that beautiful thing. And I, but like, I don't, like live into that theological picture by defining who I think is living in sin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just not how I live it. That's not how I practice it. And so, you know, I see it as an expression of my faith. I see it as, as an expression of um, the way that the Bible just lands upon me, the way that the Holy Spirit just shows, you know, God's self to me. And, you know, so that's what I express in how I live my life. And I don't see it as necessarily needing to be in opposition to other expressions of faith. I see it as almost existing in contrast, um, which is not the same thing as existing in opposition, as existing in conflict. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see it. Well, it's fascinating. Bridget, thank you. Anything else you want to make sure we understand? Uh, obviously, we're, I'm going to link to the book, the, the pre-order of the book in the show notes. And I'll put your, uh, your Twitter and your blog as well on there. Yeah. Any, any, any other parting, parting shots? Yeah, I'm probably the only other thing is that my book is out in October, October 26th. And so if people want to pre-order it, that would be wonderful because pre-orders do a lot to helping a book succeed. So, you know, you can pre-order on my website or on Amazon, you know, whatever works best for you. And yeah, I guess that's it. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, that was a really, a lot to think about for me. I mean, I'm just going to be kicking this around for a while and yeah it's, it's just fascinating thanks for thinking so thoroughly and deeply about this stuff and being willing to engage you know across a little bit of difference appreciate it yeah i appreciate it it's been a really great time thanks to bridget for joining me today i've got a link to pre-order her book in the show notes as well as a link to her twitter and her blog and josh gilbert as usual is our editor he's available for additional 
podcast editing work. Uh, his email is in the show notes. Become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Two exclusive episodes per month and access to the Facebook group. The most recent of those exclusive episodes is a response episode to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, episodes one and two. Uh, if you'd like to check out my new record, it's called Havana Swim Club, and it sounds, I don't know, a little bit like what we're hearing right now, although this is not a Havana Swim Club track. This is a different track that I wrote with my buddy Dan. Anyway, uh, that link to Spotify and elsewhere, and elsewhere, all the other stuff is in the show notes as well, and there are links to, or there's a link to soyourdeconstructing.com which is resources for newly deconstructing Christians including spiritual practices topical list therapy communities digital and in person and all that stuff okay see you guys next week